We're going to get started here. We're going to start having our conversation today about militarism. Dave, now, I, how old are you? 45. Okay, so... Born in 73. So you were born right at the end of the <laughs> Vietnam War, just right? Say that. There's this, there's this fa- that famous scene where they're pushing a helicopter off into the sea, and that happened in the week I was born. Wow, 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 wow. So you didn't, <laughs> you didn't experience um, the reality of uh, the Vietnam War. You didn't, right. you, you, from, I, from I was, about like 66, 65, 64. Yeah, so if we go with a kind of Freudian uh, psychology where, you know, y- your uh, personality, your being is being formed in your first seven years and you're absorbing all the environment. Well, the environment in the time when I was just a child was m- more anti-war, I suppose, in North America than I think it probably ever has been. I, I sucked in all these sort of anti-war sentiments. And oh, yeah. Was it anti-war age. in Canada? Um, it can't, it's a different story in Canada because it's not uh, it, it's not a country with a profound military. So, um, I mean, you, you can grow up in Canada, and for the majority of people, I think they grow up in Canada and never have any dealings with the military, never know anybody who has any dealings with the military. Uh, it's it's a completely different story than here. You just you don't have the institution like you do here. Were you familiar with uh, the kinds of things that were happening to um, people of color who? were unfortunate enough or fortunate enough to to be impacted by that war? I mean, you know, did you have any uh, dealings or have you had any dealings with black veterans? Uh, in my life? Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting that you say that. Um, uh, m- my experience uh, uh, my understanding of uh, the black experience in Vietnam has mostly come with books and movies. I th- I'm thinking now about all the veterans I've met in my life, and I don't know if I've ever met a black veteran. Which is from the Vietnam War. Yeah, <laughs> which is strange. I've, uh, um, yeah, I'm not sure. Most of the veterans that I've met have been uh, younger folk from Afghanistan anyways. Well, I met a few. uh, Iraq. Yeah. Vietnam was a very different war, Um, uh, certainly very different than the technological kinds of things that we see happening today and in places that we police. Uh, But it still was a very um, significant uh, war for uh, people of color. I mean, you know, we find out and we're we're still finding out that there was a, a enormous percentage of people of color and poor whites that were put on the front line in Vietnam simply because that was the easiest recruiting uh, strategies that people had. That's not to say that there weren't volunteers, but um, I remember experiencing because I was kind of like in my teens doing that war. You mm-hmm. know, I was in my teens, and so there was a lot of outrage that was taking place um, in the Vietnam War. And, and the veterans that were coming back, uh, there, the black veterans, and I'm not talking about you know all veterans. This is this is you know I was in basically. Uh, high school, college kinds of things going on, mm-hmm. 68, you know, 67, 66, 65. You know, we were we were experiencing both Malcolm and Martin being killed, Mega Evers being killed. Mm. Um, 
and you know John and F Kennedy, Robert F Kennedy, a lot of assassination going on, and uh, this war was being fought at the same time. None of us really understood why we were there. Later, as I began to study it a bit more, I began to see that there were some economic and political rationales, uh, specifically economic. There was a, it was an oil war, you know, because it was um, the French held uh, oil reserves there, um, and and you know. When it was called Indochina, mm-hmm. and so, uh, and then there was, um, you know, as regimes changed, uh, there was there was violence, and then we originally started in by sending in supposedly sending in peacekeepers. Mm-hmm. And then we got more and more involved and got more and more involved and it mm-hmm. became a police action. And um, so I, I, my first experience was because I had graduated um, from high school um, in like about uh, 70, 71. Mm-hmm. And I began to, but I was experiencing veterans as they were coming back home and many were coming back home addicted. Um Many were coming back home with post-traumatic stress syndrome. Mm-hmm. I went to Malcolm X College in Chicago, and so I got a chance, opportunity to meet uh, several uh, veterans. Uh, they had a veterans organization at Malcolm X College. And uh, they had this um, way of greeting one another. They call it the DAP. And basically it was how brothers that were in the NAM kind of identified with one another was a uniquely cultural kind of thing. The DAP was something that you did with your hands. It was a greeting that you did. It's kind of, it goes back, it it kind of uh, is a throwback to Africa, kind of like a Sankofa kind of uh, reach back to Africa in terms of how one would greet one. So mm. you kind of see that today when you see how people shake hands and mm-hmm. hug and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there was some specificity to it. There was some detail to it. And it had the complexities of it had to do with the situation that uh, African-Americans, uh, veterans found themselves. And uh, they told me some significant uh, stories. I remember... Um, uh, there was one guy named Seymour. Seymour was uh, Lannis's uh, brother. Uh, he had went to Vietnam. He used to have nightmares. You know, he would be in the basement and he would talk about things that would happen. Johnny Brown, who uh, dad owned the shoe shop on the on the uh, west side of Chicago, was a black vet, and he would come and talk to the young brothers. You know, we were teenagers, and he would talk to us about the kinds of things that they were experiencing, which were, which were kind of horrific kind of things that were going on, one of which was that there was some significant infighting that was taking place uh, between <laughs> between uh, veterans uh, in the war, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and, th- and there have been several um, books that have written about this, you know, there's one that we used to use in core called The Things They Carry. That's that gives you one kind of picture. Um, I think there's another one called Bloods uh, that that gives you another kind of uh, a picture of what's going on. But um, I, I bring that up because that kind of brought me alive to looking at uh, what our subject is going to be today, which is militarism. Um, I remember what I remember of the Vietnam War is that it was unpopular war. Uh, people were coming back; they were traumatized. People were also coming back addicted because that was basically the kind of drug extraction. Uh, uh, 
arena as well. And mm-hmm. so we, you know, we get the popular, you know, the American gangster kind of things. So at the height of the war, people are basically sending drugs back any way that they can. Uh, that drug is a lot purer than uh, what what's going on the streets during that time. So it hikes up the, the heroin addiction that's taking place. Right. All this is happening in, in the wake of this kind of military action. What I remember significantly and what's going to be the, the basically the basis of our conversation today is I remember King very clearly coming out against the war and raising the issue of imperialism and militarism Mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to us looking at a war on poverty and a war on miseducation Mm -hmm. and raising the question of whether or not we should redirect those kind of dollars that we're spending to build this military infrastructure or continuing to finance this military infrastructure that's been built by then uh, to address the issues of uh, education and the lack thereof, or poverty um, in, in American culture, American society. So my question to you is, is what, what role do you think militarism has played in uh, the nation today? Uh, specifically, uh, its impact on those individuals who would be perceived to be marginalized. Yeah. I think for a lot of Americans, I think this is probably less true for the black community in particular, but I think for a lot of Americans, they probably feel like violence and uh, it isn't something that enters into their life um, that often. And so they probably don't think of the U.S. as a particularly violent society. Now, as we all know, I I come from the country up north, come from a different country. My um, vision of uh, the U.S. has always been very different. Um, I didn't grow up here, so what I know of American culture, knew of American culture for the first 30 years of my life, I got from television, uh, television movies, which were always very violent. (laughs) Well, not always, but there's a lot of violence coming out of the U.S. And news stories, and uh, the the U.S. is is the military superpower, Uh, not only in the world now, but um, throughout history. There has never been in the history of humanity such a machine for war as the American military. No, nothing that even remotely... So much so that people... Nations have copied or mimicked or uh, used it as a template to build their own military infrastructure. And yet come nowhere nowhere near. You, you have to combine, you know, the next four or five most massive militaries in the world in order to get near the size of the, of the American military. Um, it's, it's, it's lopsided. It's always been lopsided, but this country has always presented enemies out there that are somehow equal to them um, so that the American military has to go out and defend against them. It's part of the narrative that keeps the American military big, right? It's a sense that we're, th- we're going to threaten. We're basically going to increase the, the, you, the budget this year. Again, again. But if you weren't born if, in America, and I think, I, I suspect this is probably true globally, America is the threat, right? I mean, like you look at uh, the United States, United, it, like if, if you're looking, if you're looking at a bunch of people, you know, on the streets, the, and there's one person here who's got all the guns and all the knives, right? There you go. That's immediately, that's the person I'm afraid of. And it's not clear that for people around the world, just because that person with the guns and knives is saying, no, you can trust us because we believe in human rights, that that makes you feel any better about the fact that they have all these guns and knives, especially when all of my life, the U.S. was always sort of in a war. There was this moment, I think, uh, you know, after Vietnam where where there was questioning about, so I experienced 
uh, Vietnam as a, I experienced the after effects of Vietnam and, and as a child and just hearing these simple messages, I experienced it as a moment where uh, people, you know, where there was this, uh, a, a sense of a critiquing war for the sake of humanity. That there's something fundamentally wrong with it. Now that I'm older and I live in this country, I was disappointed to discover, I think it was actually just about um, a critique of, of policy, <laughs> not so much war, mm-hmm. but just sort of like, well, is that the war we should have been in, et cetera, et cetera. By the time you get to George Bush, who just, you know, died, uh, the first George Bush who just died recently, and, uh, and you know, the skirmish, the first Gulf War, you have a, a kind of renewing of faith in American might and power again, in, in the, the blood of Iraqis, this, this sort of the faith of Americans is, is, is renewed. Um, I think, to my vantage point, in a way that would probably offend so many people in this country, I think militarism is at the heart, the very written, the very DNA of this country in the same way that, that racism is. It's been there from the beginning. This this country. So, you know, again, uh, if you look at uh, North America as colonized by what uh, white Europeans, the United States of America and Canada, they both begin like that. Right, French and, and English coming over here and creating sort of new countries on top of the people who are already here. And then, of course, in, in the States, in a way that was not true in Canada, you, you also had people from Africa coming in that project, but unwillingly. Um, and then there's this huge difference. This southern country decided to violently slough off the, uh, the sort of colonial power and uh, the northern country that I come from didn't. And I'm uh, not re- not to say that there's any sort of greater morality from the north for this, but the, this country has a history from the start, I think, of thinking of violence as something that does good. You know, and, uh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, sorry. So just, I mean, I think you see. I was just, I mean, you story know. Story after story. There's, there's a reason why superheroes come from here, right? Big, powerful people that just do good by punching people out. There's a myth here about the good of violence. You watch cop shows. Power Rangers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or, you know, you watch cop shows. American Mighty cop Mouse. Shows, and they, yeah. Mighty actually, Mouse. You watch American cop shows versus British cop shows. In American cop shows, the, the cops win by pushing people around, by, by throwing their weight around in British cop shows they win by thinking through stuff well, like there's 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 a myth the British has so its own. deep oh the British has no, I'm not, its own. come on I'm not, no no I'm not saying that I'm just saying by comparison you can see in this in this country it's a lot more shooting in the American it's a lot more shooting in the in in the detective cop shows yeah yeah, 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 yeah it's a lot more shooting going the, on I mean there's just a comfortability with the thought that organized violence is going to get you uh it's gonna it's gonna make the hero win yeah. and the hero is always you know evil makes good yeah yeah, right. I mean, I well, think I mean, from the start in this country. Okay, so all right, so all right, I kind of, that, and that's a good, that's a good start to the backdrop. What do you think is going on culturally, um, where the DNA is so vested in militarism? What what's happening? Because see, um, you know, so much of my uh, um, childhood and teen years. Um, that media and that kind of way of thinking was kind of introduced into an influence and we were influenced by that violence so much so that it was normalized and it is normalized. I mean, you know, so, uh, and and what I'm very, very fascinated about and uh, and I would, uh, I I encourage our listening artists to look at a couple of videos by, um, um, 
Lupe Fiasso and um, uh, Childish Gambino who and and Kodak Black, who are all rappers who are hip hop, who've done significant videos on dealing with the reality of this violence. And so it's like the the hip hop community mm-hmm. is real clear about it. I mean, uh, Childish Gambino does a, a one talk about this is America. It's, it's so provocative. It's so, I mean, it's so challenging in terms of how guns and violence is a part of who we are and what we do. Lupe does the same thing. Kodak does the same thing. Um, so so obviously, uh, these individuals who, what I would call uh, uh, cultural kind of uh, uh, iconic, kind of breaking the ground, kind of uh, uh, um, first reachers, if you will, these are individuals who are on the margins who are basically trying to communicate to an audience what this means to them mm-hmm. and 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 if you see those videos you say wow that's a stark reality there's there's one scene in Lupe's where the the kid is sitting up in front of a television and the television is is showing depictions of violence and the scene is you could see the violence being reflected mm. on the the little child it's yeah. about about 18 month old 2 month old uh, i mean a 20 month old kid yeah. and the violence is reflecting in the eyes of that's coming off the screen yeah you know into the kid and so they so th- that means that these guys you know who we often you know write off they got it they understand this normalization of violence. But my question is, is why so much fear? Why so much, why such a need for people to, um, to respond in this particular way in terms of militarism? And, 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 and what, do you, what do you think drives that? What's that, that desire? Is that a psychological question? Uh, I think it's a psychological question, a cultural question, a sociological question, and a political question all bound up together. Wow. You can't, you That's can't, a big question. Yeah, you can't excise one from the other, right? Like there's, there's certainly um, – I mean if you, wanted, if you want to start from psychology – uh, I don't know, Dr. Jones, when, when uh, I have like four or five thoughts, because you always do this to me, right? Because you say something, there's like four or five avenues we, we could go down here. <coughs> and I always feel like I choose the abstract one, which is not, That's but okay. I have less abstract ones in my head than this. It's fun anyway. But, um, you want to go down psychology. I mean, I mean, yeah, and uh, we all know this, right? But, uh, you know, in the, in the 20th century, psychology uh, the, as an academic discipline was really interested in aggression. Like, it's been the last couple of decades that in, in some ways because, you know, you had maybe new people coming in who just needed to find something new to write for their PhDs. It's like, ah, like people have been writing about aggression for 80 years. What more can you say about that? That people have turned to start thinking about uh, things that we might think of as my, like more positive aspects of our psychology, like happiness and love and empathy and sympathy for a long time aggression was the sort of the sort of key um i you know freud and freud witnesses world war one and he goes what is going on with us psychologically that we're the kinds of creatures that do this and he posits that fundamentally to explain humanity explain human psychology this the sort of line that you can't 
get any deeper then if you keep it well why are we like this why are we like this why are we like this keep finally you get to an answer that there is no why for uh he's just there's two forces that drive us and one is the force to to bind together uh in sex and love and communities and the other is to just rip each other apart and for freud it was just there it's just a part of what we were just a part of who we are it's just a part of our our, our basic uh dna as and you know we're animals like all other animals and you look around in the wild and, and this is that this is the dynamic of being alive on this planet earth so the lion tells the antelope don't take it personally <laughs> some <laughs> some love the fact that they're that the, the their prey are taking it personally uh some get off on that and some yeah and some just say this is just the way it is but that there's you know um there's i mean uh and even common sense will tell us this right that the the human can condition is such and just the condition of life on this planet is such that uh, we're finite we can't do everything that we want we can't achieve all of our needs and uh, we know fear that pain hurts and partic- and then with the, the human condition we know about our mortality we know we're going to die um, and it's certainly and we also start to figure out for humanity that violence um, can achieve uh, that if you have the, the means to to conduct violence on somebody will, in, unless they have a stronger uh, force of violence against you, you can get what you want. So, so it's a shortcut in but, terms. It's a shortcut in terms of if if I was thinking sociologically, then you know the way that I uh, a means to an end. You know, it's a shortcut to my self interest. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't even think it's a shortcut. I think it's the first route that we learn to get what we want. I think it's, I think violence is fundamental. Sandbox stuff. Yeah. Back to what I was saying, how I think for a lot of Americans, and I think this is less true for marginalized groups who experience, like this is another place I think we want to go, right? Mm -hmm. This is is what you're talking about, that experience uh, the force of violence very different. People in this country experience the force of violence very differently. There's, there's a a newscaster, what's his name? Chris Hayes, uh, for like MSNBC newscaster. And he wrote a book like last year or something about, uh, you know, you look at the United States, and it looks like a it looks like a, a an occupied nation in that you have this small marginalized group, which is you know primarily uh, people of color, but particularly African Americans, uh, who experience the state and the force of violence as something that that contains them, locks them out, that is their enemy. And then you have this whole other population, primarily the white population, that experience the police and the forces of violence as people who protect them, so maintain the law. See, different experiences, right? Let me see if I understand what you're saying. Is is so when we look at everyday whites yeah. in society, yeah. they're kind of like walking through. Most of them are not getting like harassed or hit or they're slapped. They're walking through their reality. Of violence. Yeah. Sorry, they're, walking yeah. Through, they're walking through their reality yeah. like one would walk through an occupied country where there are certain individuals, certain as areas. Occupiers. As occupiers. They're yeah. walking through it. And, and so they have this, this, this momentous kind of privilege to not have to carry the weight of dealing with state violence and, and individual violence. Yeah, the state serves them. The state serves the them. Of the state so serves they them. move. This, this this is this guy's way yeah. of uh, vision, so the, right? Yeah. So they move through this understanding in a different way. In other words, the, the way that they look at reality, the way they look at work and God and, you know, love and, you know, relationship. So they don't feel like daily they're under threat. Right. 
right? They don't they don't go to work and think that that uh, violence or that they're not driving home and, and worrying about that whether or not the yeah the somebody's going to stop me and hurt hurt me exactly right yeah like be, the kids said be last somebody week. random or the forces of the state I had like kids that. in here last week who's saying but you know that's one of the things that you know a, a kid he, he, you know he's praying he's saying I hope right. one day that I can go through you know I had three kids here from VU and yeah. you know they're young men of color and basically they're saying I hope I can get through the day without having to be worried about somebody hurting me right. or me seeing somebody getting hurt. Right. And there's know. a huge swath of the population that, you know, uh, may know that people live like that in the U.S., but don't feel that themselves, don't actually feel No, that absolutely anymore. not. That's what uh, I, I think the book uh, uh, Robin D'Angelo, White Fragility, she talks about that, you mm-hmm. know, that there's just a tremendous, it's beyond privilege. It's, it's just knowing that the reality that you're in is one in which it's not going to... Uh, it, it yeah, is, your it, environment is, is essentially protecting you it's rather protecting than threatening you. you, right? So, so just um, it, it, for those in, in that condition, it's hard to think that the country, the fundamental force that holds a political society together right now is violence because they're not seeing it all the time. They're not seeing it all day long. And but in some respect, we want to keep them away. We want to keep them away from that, well, right? That's the, that, that's the thing. Like ultimately, what is running the thing, Like we, you know, we can have laws and we can have courts and institutions and things that keep the both the trains running and the, and the people within the, you know, staying, driving down the right side of the road and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the, the ways that we're supposed to do to keep society organized. But when things go awry, it, it, it's only maintained because we have forces of violence that step in. Right, the the violence that is, we have to trust going to do the right thing. Violence is like the basement. We're not all looking at it, but it's the foundation of the thing. Okay, it's the foundation of that's society. where everybody's coming out of. Everybody's coming out of the basement. Everybody is hanging on and relying on the forces of violence. And in this country, for for this is true every everywhere, but this country is really really grabbed onto it. So you can see that the police force is far more militaristic here than in other countries. You know, when I go to the, the Republic of Ireland, the cops don't even carry guns, and right. here and here sometimes they send in. SWAT teams to, to deal with what should just be like community policing problems in certain areas. Right? I'm not saying that's everywhere, but that, that mm-hmm. how you read, you can find these in these news stories. It's not, it's not it's kind of madness to say that. And, uh, you know, so part of it is uh, psychology. Part of it is that that's the foundation of political and social order. But there's also money. Right, because there's there's a tremendous a tremendous amount of money has been made selling bullets and guns and ever advancing military machinery, and they need people to sell that too. So when when they don't even have wars, they turn around and they sell them to the to the police forces here. Well, I mean, but they're not just selling. That, that's <coughs> that's what we're talking about. We this is WVLP one hundred three point one on your FM dial, and you are listening to Morning Black. We're talking about militarism today, and uh, I have the philosopher historian. Uh, professor from Valparaiso University, David Western, here with us today, sharing information about, you know, what are some of the roots of militarism and how do they happen? And so when we talk about this and we look at it, you know, in American culture, American society, we see individuals who have been impacted by this violence mm-hmm. long term. I mean, you know, I was getting ready to and I'm, I'm probably going to do this at another time. But when we talk about Native Americans, for example, yeah. and uh, I was reading the introduction of this particular work and basically he's saying, well, number one, um, Blacks and Native Americans have had an intimate relationship for a very long time. People have, you know, dismissed it. Mm-hmm. Um 
you know, most of the people who have done, you know, good things, you know, in the contribution to American culture, American society have been Native American and African American. Mm -hmm. And it has been excised out of the history books. You know, mm -hmm. it simply has been taken out of the history books. Mm -hmm. At the same time, what we see is a very regimented, very, very uh, uh, meticulous uh, movement to remove Native American cultures off their land mm -hmm. and to enslave and uh, use as permanent labor force uh, African-Americans. Yeah. And this is part and parcel of this notion that we need to have a huge military and huge... And this is this whole notion that you're talking about in terms of the, the root, the base... Yeah. line understanding is we utilize violence, mm -hmm. you know, in order to uh, navigate our self-interest. And, and, and now that I think about it, then, you know, a lot of what we see in sports and a lot of what we see in terms of, you know, um, the fandom of, 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 of sports is also kind of encouraging and normalizing this, this violent tendency. But underneath that... It appears to me that there's a lot of fear. What do you think? Oh, yeah, of course. You mean on the parts of people who, who would promote yeah. militaries? Yeah. yeah. It's a lot of fear. Yeah, I feel like it, it, it's tricky. Um, I mean, roll back for a second and say that if you looked around the world, you would see different levels of sort of commitment to militarism in different countries. So sure. simply uh, psychological discussion won't cover it because then you would probably see the same levels of militarism around the, the, the world if it was just about sort of basic human psychology, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Of course, human psychology is always bound in with the, the culture and the environment and et cetera, et cetera, uh, and economics, whatever. So, uh, you know, so the question of fear, you could ask, well, why is it that we are so tremendously socked into this massive military institution here? And in other places, don't you know, in Canada, you don't see anything like that sort of military. Why here? Are they, just, are they just less afraid in Canada? It's not just fear, right? Right. And, and the other thing, you know, okay, so there's a, there's a, a journalist named Chris Hedges, Christopher Hedges, and uh, I think that's his name. He wrote a, a book that gets used a lot in you know, peace studies courses. It's a, uh, and it's called something like War is a Force that Gives Us Meaning. Mm -hmm. An interesting book because, because uh, it, it, it's sort of all about how war can become a kind of addictive. For many people, it's a, a sort of positive. For many people who are engaged in war, engaged in the military, they see, they see this as a, an arena in which they can express their virtues. They can show, you know, that they're uh, courageous, heroic people. Just and, war, that and, kind of stuff, right? Yeah, and I mean, almost anybody who fights a war has to tell themselves that there's something just about it. But that that's not true. That's how a lot of people rationalize it or deal with it. Others just, just shut off the whole, like, you put it in a box and you put it under the bed and you don't think about it. Others, you know, just face what they have to do to survive. And so there are different aspects to that. But... Um, there, there is certainly fear, and you can you can just see that in, in in any story where the military gets rolled out. It's about like in in this country, there's a couple of stories for why the military gets rolled out, and one is defense. Uh -huh. We have enemies out there who are just who are just awful people, and I, I, I'm not saying I, I doubt this, but uh, to the degree I suppose that we have the military. I, I, um, I'm going to doubt it a bit, but, uh, the, the, you know, there are horrible people out there that just want to do us harm, so we have to defend. Well, that's a fear story, right? But, but there's also the story that you see advertised uh, 
the little TV that I watch, I like to watch uh, English football. So I watch a sport, and you see this being you see the military advertising for uh, or in sports shows all the time. So there, somebody thinks there's a connection there. Along as you do absolutely, and and you uh, you see this ad- advertisement for the Navy all the time. That the the tag, the motto of the advertisement for the Navy is the uh, U.S. Navy, a force for good in the world. Right. Yeah, that's the not world a fear story. That's a sort of virtue story. Absolutely. Like we are, you know, like like Greek mythology. We're the heroic warriors that are going around and, and making things good. Again, with the idea that violence is the foundation and the and the hope in this story. And I don't uh, endorse this story, but the hope is that uh, violence is on the side of good, being used for good purposes. So there's fear, but there's also belief in the goodness of the thing. There's also the sense that the, the deify do you think we deify deemed in blood, right? What's that? Do we deify violence? Uh, totally violence. You know, the, do we deify the military, deify war? A couple of years ago I clued into something that um, that you know, I now I can't believe I didn't see for all of my all of my life, but the, the the first, you know, going back to Jewish and Christian tradition, uh, this millennia long ancient sort of wisdom tradition is the first uh, you know, commandment on Moses' list is that you, no false idols, right? That you won't worship any idols before God. And uh, you think about that in terms of things like golden calves and other deities. But actually, you know, start to realize, and it's like, it's anything, anything that we put our love to that isn't just, uh, you know, love for what really matters, which is life, the sanctity of life, right? And, and, um, uh, God, however you understand God, but loving the military, loving money, loving cars, whatever, whatever, right? That's all idolatry. Loving guns. Loving guns. It's all idolatry. The, the issue with the, the hip hop community is profoundly complex when you were talking about that and you were saying how there's recent uh, artists who are a kind of, you know, lamenting. Right, and, and addressing it. Of I mean, you know, putting themselves violence, putting themselves on the front line, so to speak. You right. know, and I, you know, so I, uh, my first experience with hip hop was the early '90s. I was a white boy in Canada listening to rock music, and all of a sudden we were getting all this sort of like uh, emerging rap uh, music. And didn't know that it wasn't rock music. Just thought it was awesome music. I was listening to it, but there was something in it that was different. Um, we were listening to like uh, Public Enemy and N- NWA. I think N- NWA in particular, and it came out. And I know there's this huge controversy in this country about the violence of it. And what I heard, and what I always thought it was, was a lament. I thought it was always, you know, a, a sort of ar- an artistic expression of uh, a terrible conditions. But it, it was it was picked up and celebrated but see, for that, decades, right? But see, that's and, the thing, though. And see, you had white suburban kids everywhere, like, celebrating the fact that there is, like... In these, all things cultural, yeah. in all things cultural, and this is a very good, this is a very good point, in all things cultural, when we talk about people of color, then there's always this notion that they need to prove themselves, yeah. you know, and that this, that, and, and there's not a lot of time investing and in looking at the depth of what people are saying because already we're looking at those individuals as marginalized, as outsiders. And so mm-hmm. there's no time taken to look at, okay, so what are they trying to say? What is going on? What, you know, why is this a important thing that people are raising up in terms of song or lyric? Yeah. But, I mean, you know, um, 
killing, killing. That was fear, right? The reaction to that was just fear. Well, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. See, and 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 so there, there's a catch twenty two here that I think is very important. One is is that the more fear, the more guns. The more guns, the more fear. Yeah. You know. So I mean, you know, in one respect, you know, you you're in a a kind yeah. of cycle yeah. of a of can't get out of yeah. a loop that you can't get out of that's building more. It's, it's kind of like insane. Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> I mean, you know, yeah. I mean, to, to you know, to have like you know, sarin gas or you know, uh, um, one hundred fifty megaton hydrogen. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you yeah, know, it's, yeah, it's just yeah. you know, or or spend you know fifty billion dollars on one new stealth, you know, yeah. and all that kind of. I mean, you know, it's it, 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 it's it's kind of like a form of insanity. Yeah. That that yeah. we have you. normalized, yeah. and I think the world sees that, and. I mean, it's just it's just weird how uh, the average individual. This is not even this is not a conversation that can be had with any kind of rationality in the public sector. Yeah, you know? yeah. You know, as as I became uh, an academic in my life, I found myself increasingly disappointed with how intelligent people see things or can rationalize things. He said, I don't know, it, there's an insanity to uh, the thought that you can escalate your levels of violence to secure life. Somehow. Right. And, um, and so so insane th- that you can't um, imagine having a rational conversation about it. And so I went to academia and I studied war and peace and I found out that the the people who are most of the people who are elevated as the intelligent ones in academia and in politics do rationalize it right so there's there's one story so here's the the sort of realist story in international relations that probably the best way to achieve security and stability is to have everybody pointing guns at each other as as a kind of mutual uh um um Fear and in that mutual fear, that will deter us from actually pulling the triggers. And we have the biggest guns, and we have the biggest. Yeah, so you know, for some some realists, they might worry actually that the problem is that America is too lopsided or overloaded with power. Or actually, I mean, you know, so one academic, I remember uh, Stephen Walt. He, in my head, for some reason, he's the first one who said this, but I don't know if that's true or not. Um, He's a guy who still writes. You find him in like the Foreign Policy magazine. But uh, I, I just remember he. He did a, wrote a whole book about how, you know, you could, you could exp- uh, argue that wars, gra- wars had global wars happen or wars, you know, between nations happen when there's uh, uncertainty about who has the power. So as long as everybody knows that the U.S. has the power, they won't challenge them. But as China rises, eventually you get to a point where China starts to go, well, I'm, you know, I mean, we're just equal with you, the U.S. would this have policy debates or whatever, and we wind up having a, a, a war to sort out who actually has the power. Well, see, that's what I'm saying, and and, and that's one of the things that I want to uh, to kind of direct the discussions toward, because when we talk about militarism and mm-hmm. we see the buildup that's taking place, mm-hmm. uh, and 
the the uh, demonization of places like Iran. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, uh, China and you know other places where you know mm-hmm. we're saying and and, and 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 we got this weird kind of nuance where the Saudis are kind of standing on the outside saying, well, we'll pay anybody that we need to pay what we need to pay them in order to you know meet our military interests. We you know yeah. we want to we want to have kind of like a flagstaff kind of uh, military, but really what we're saying is we're going to fight our wars with our money, you know, so that, yeah. so what we're going to do is we're going to, we're going to buy mercenaries and whether we buy them from the United States or we buy them from Canada or we buy them from Germany, it doesn't matter to yeah. us because we know you all want money and we yeah. got it, yeah. you know? <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, you know, which is, which is a whole nother, to me, another world of weirdness in terms of how people are meting out their, their self-interest. Mm-hmm. But in the face of that, it seems like there is this uh, notion that uh, what we need to do is keep our society on edge enough so that we can always finance this great fear, you know, uh, mm-hmm. uh, of not being, of being defenseless. And that to me, this, this takes us back to our common conversations about the end of the world stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, that can't hold up, can it, Dave? I mean... Yeah. The irony of this is, and I think my first worry way back from a, when I was a child, and worry is even too, too simple of a word, but my first experience with the um, unworthiness of humanity was our violence. It says, you know, it's fundamental from an early age you can experience this somebody hits you yeah right and you realize what the world is uh, somebody big hits you yeah exactly somebody in your family right or somebody uh at, at school when you first go to school and then you realize the world that you're in right that, that that too is a part of the world from an early age but the irony is that now that we're at a place where i really do think the the, the best thing we can do is think about how we continue on post-civilization uh as we've been talking about um uh, i'm not sure i think the gun's and the military buildup is going to come into play, but it's going to come and play in like a second wave. I think the what's going to get us was is uh, the consequences of our of our um, you know you, you want to say like economic greed, but it's not that. It was the belief that we could shape the world to fit our desires, and then we've changed the ecology. And I think the econ- economy is is too stressed. But in that. As things get really hard and really tight, people will turn to violence to maintain themselves. To maintain, I think they already are justice. Yeah, yeah. I think they already are. I mean, I think. I mean, you know, um, recent shooting in uh, downtown Chicago in the subway, and uh, what the CTA uh, official came out. Some of the officials came out and said, "What we need to do is just need to give everybody a gun. If everybody had, if everybody had a gun, then it would would be less likely. If only teachers were armed, you know, children would be safe. I mean, that's that's becoming more of the. That's becoming more and more of the language. You're listening to WVLP, 103.1 on your FM dial, and we are streaming live at WVLP.org. This is Morning Black, and we are having a conversation, kind of provocative conversation about militarism and gun violence and violence um, and and how that is becoming more and more part and parcel and normalized in terms of how we understand reality. And, and, And I don't think that's a new 
new thing. I think that's something that's been going on for for some time. And the other thing that I'm I'm really interested in is is how few times we have this conversation in depth. I mean, you know, and and the pushback that takes place when anybody begins to raise questions about are there alternative ways in which we can mediate self-interest besides violence. I mean, you know, I often say uh, to my my class classes, I say, well, you know, why is it that we use our adrenal gland more than we re- use that that atrophied frontal lobe? Why don't <laughs> why don't we use that why don't we use that frontal lobe more and that adrenal gland less in terms of navigating our self-interest? And what is that? So is is this notion of violence that we're talking about in American culture, American society, uh, and and thus the global community? Is this evolutionary? Is it is it are we at a place where violence just has to saturate human community to a point where and if we survive violence, then we become we become a different kind of humanity. What do you think? Um, We wouldn't transcend violence or we won't transcend violence until we it's never going to go away until we become a different kind of humanity. Um, I don't know exactly what the answer is. I don't think we're I I don't believe for any situation that we're trapped such that uh, not that defeatist about any situation, Uh but I'm certainly realistic and think things sort of get bad. Um, In order to answer that, I'm going to go back to something that I was thinking and and only sort of sort of half say. But um, so how when I became an academic, I was disappointed in the ways that great thinkers can actually rationalize these things that seem just obviously wrong or sinful or awful to to me. And uh, and, you know, one of one of the ways is something like these are the kinds of creatures that we are. Um, what we have to learn to manage our violence because we're always going to be appealing to violence to, to pursue our self-interest or to keep ourselves safe. Um, so, you know, we, we just to, to be wise, we need to manage our violence. And that does mean pulling out the guns occasionally or often, et cetera, et cetera. The other way that I see it justified is something like, as I've been saying, there's something good in this. This is the way that the good win or there's something redeeming in occasionally shedding blood or something like that. And what I realized uh, was that intelligence or rationality or discussion can can still justify can justify violence. In fact, more people justify violence than bless you. And it's not even. I don't think the frontal lobe is the bulwark against violence because I've just seen too many people who can come up with arguments for it. There's there's some facility that humans can reach for, and I think of it as a spiritual thing. I think it's grace, some higher thing that it just just winds up being a, a sense that you don't want to see suffering. You don't want to see violence. You don't think that that's evolution? Um, I think, yeah, of course. I mean, to the, to the degree that human beings are the way that we are because we've evolved, it, it winds up in us some, somewhere. And, I, and you know, now we could wind up getting into something that nobody will ever know for sure. But uh, whether universally we're, we're all sort of born with this desire to not see pain and violence, but we learn to accept or even love pain and violence, or whether the, the love, pain, and violence is in us or in some and not others, et cetera, et cetera. And I suspect it's probably the latter. But um, um, the the answer to how we become a, a, a humanity that's transcendent of violence is that, that ha- we have to utterly, utterly succumb to the whatever is in us that allows us to have some grace and to say, you know, I, to, to, to shirk and say, say, say the greatest tragedy is when we bring uh, violence onto others. But here's the thing, Greg, and now I'm going to get, 
I'm going to get all religious on us here. Okay, right? go ahead. But uh, when I read the Gospels, particularly the Gospel of Mark, I see, this is what I see in a way that I don't think a lot of Christians read it this way. Um, you have this figure who's supposed to be representing God, right? It's supposed to be God on earth and incarnated on earth, essentially saying... Um, pull away from, have nothing to do with that whole world where you achieve success and power and might through earthly means, violence and the power of money. Pull away from that and move to a place where you you don't accept or where you give those things away, where you renounce those things and you make yourself vulnerable and you make yourself weak. Carry a cross even if it costs you your life. And the thing is, you know, as a friend of mine said the other day, that's supernatural. Absolutely. Right? I mean, but... The thought that something in us, but what amazes me about humans is this is in us, but that somebody might say... I would rather get on my knees and, you know, face the threat of you killing me than me turn around and use my violence on you is profoundly demanding of an ask. But that is where I think the the challenge, the karmic challenge of our of but our Dave, human evolution is. That's exactly what I think. Dave, it is. Dave, Dave. <laughs> but 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 yeah. listen listen to the conversations <coughs> o- over the Chablis and the Brie, right? And the, yeah. and the provolone. Yeah, Starting to sound too much and the, like I'm just and the gourmet like crackers. Listen to listen yeah. to, listen to the listen to the conversations that folks are having. Yeah. They have conversations about everything. Uh, yeah. They have, I, I mean, they have, they have, they, they talk the, about, this is they talk point. about being fair. They talk about, you know, what yeah. can we give to? They talk about yeah. uh, all these different things. All and these then they, good people who think and they're then, doing all this good stuff. While they're, yeah. But they're not renouncing. They're not taking, they're not taking that particular advice now, which is key to dismantling that, that, that matrix of violence that's taking place. I think that you, you have large militaries, you have militarism because you think somebody's going to take your stuff, yeah. you know, <laughs> you that's know, right. and you worried about your stuff. And if, you know, if you're in that category of people for whom the state is protecting you, right now, if you talk about, if you're people, in that group, if you're in that group, if you're talking about the people who are struggling every day, yeah. just to, to breathe, just to, you know, to eat, just to make it, you know, through the day, then you have another reality that you're confronting, which is the the violence that's being perpetrated on your person and, which, and which your is, identity and, and your, yeah. your dignity and your physical person even. Which is why for a while their guns became such a symbol in the in the hip hop culture. I think that there's that's an expression of something like independence, uh, or, or the ability or uh, empowerment in a country where militarism is at the foundation and those folks were on the wrong side of the of the you know uh, but it's never been safe or threatening it's line. never been seen as an answer it's 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 oh, yeah, been no, seen yeah. it's right. been seen always even in the culture itself if you talk about hip-hop and we know it's that's it's how we're talking desperation it's, right? it's a sign of cult, uh, cultural cancer yeah. that is is yeah. part of the pathology yeah. of a community yeah. but that know, people are trying to speak to yeah you know so going way back but when people were afraid of the nwa album they ideas well here's just a, a bunch of individuals that are bad bad dudes that are like violent or whatever and, and it's like no it's there's a there's a set of conditions that 
put him in that situation. I mean, but right? see, so, first of all, that people think that you know that, that folks are ignorant because they're not they're not uh, attending these uh, illustrious Ivy Towers. People know that the way that you got slave labor capitalists over here is that you traded gunpowder and gunpowder technology, yeah, you know, to to local tr- tribal communities in exchange yeah. for for living bodies so that yeah. you could build, you know, you know your plantations and things of that nature. That's a that's a reality. Folks are aware of that. Right. They know that that gunpowder and gunpowder technology, you know, was exchanged for human human chattel right. in order to be, build slave labor capitalism. Right. Folks understand that. Right. They understand. I mean, that's what that's what I think these artists are trying to say to you. Is saying, look, you, you think we don't understand what America is? Yeah. That's what that's what Childish Gambino is saying. Right. This is what America is. Right. You know, and, yeah. one moment we dancing, one moment we singing, and the next moment we shooting each other in the head. Right. That's what it's about. Mm-hmm. You know, now. And that's not a random chaos. No, no, that's, that's an organized that's chaos. Organized. That's an organized because, chaos. Because violence and militarism are at the foundation of the society. And liberal Holding community. Liberal community. People who, you know, oh, I would never do that. You know, <laughs> those folks basically say, well, no, but we're not like that. See, we're different. But the system that invokes the militarism and the violence mm-hmm. and the threat to violence is still very much they a part of the that reality. They're living behind the walls. Well, they're living on the safe side of the not walls. Not so much so now. I mean, yeah. but that's what that's that's the other reality is that those walls inevitably are going to come down, yeah. right? Now, my concern is is, is I'm there I'm intrigued go. about that's the elite's fear. Yeah. That's the elite's fear. What's the elite's fear? That the the rabble are going to revolt. Well, but but how do we revolt? I think one of the questions that you're raising that is provocative is you're saying that there has to be a fundamental shift in the way that we perceive ourselves and the things that we knew know and understand as real there has to be a, a supernatural change in that is that what you're saying on a grand scale like i mean i feel like i feel like probably every person whoever listens to this can can to whatever degree they endorse uh, violence or not can look in their own lives and, and realize there's moments where they violence seems abhorrent, something like their own children or something like that. Like it's in us, right? But that has to expand to a, a grander uh, the, uh, the lens through which we look at humanity. That's not the case, right? Like mo- this, just far too many of us don't look at everybody with the same kind of love or the same kind of um, abhorrence of violence that we do look at look at people that are the, the the two or three people that we feel are most close to us. I, I, we're getting to my maybe the last five minutes. We want to talk about a little about one of the things that I see in that Markian text that you mm-hmm. you talk about is this notion of intimacy and vulnerability, mm-hmm. and the fact that you know we need to come to a place where we're consciously being more intimate and vulnerable to one another and to the world, even in, in, even in the wolfish world that we live in, Mm -hmm. we need to display more intimacy and vulnerability. What do you think about that? It takes more strength to walk into a a room full of guns with with your hands (laughs) empty, right? And then people, of course, will say, well, then you're just going to wind up dead. And and in some cases, that's true. Martin Luther King is a great example of this, right? Uh, Bullet took out his life, but he's never, he can't be silenced. We are talking about him this morning. Right. right, his he could, his his words and his ideas have continued on and will continue on for the ex- entire existence of this uh, this 
country. And, um, you know, he refused to get involved in a, a sort of violent way or violent manner. So y- you know that I have a tattoo on my arm that is a whole bunch of religious symbols wrapped around my arm. Uh, I have great and equal respect for religious and wisdom traditions around the world. So I, I'm not saying this to privilege or elevate Christianity, but the amazing thing about that story, Christian story, is it says, hey, when God comes down and incarnates in a fleshy body, you know what it, God does? God doesn't become a king and pick up a sword and gun and push people around. God gets crucified. Right? God says a bunch of stuff. And then when the people of violence come for him, he dies. It does not unleash God's power. Right? That's the amazing thing about that story, about that, the Christian myth. It, like at the heart of it is a kind of rejection, renunciation of the even against your enemies. I mean, I think that's why our liberal community, you know, and I have lots of liberal friends that say, well, you know, I just can't believe in the church. I can't believe in God. I can't, you know, I can't mm-hmm. because it's, you know, this is police. Or they can't do yeah. that. But whatever. And, it's, but it's I, think, amazing I think the power story. of that, yeah. I think the power of that. Of that myth, yeah. Frightens people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's the most terrifying thing. That's what I'm saying. It's supernatural. It frightens, it frightens to be people able to do that because they have to give up everything. Yeah, it's terrifying. Exactly. It's terrifying. It's terrifying. And you have to stand naked before God and humanity. Oh boy. Who can tear you apart? We know humanity can tear you apart because they evidence the it. See it all the time. Mm-hmm. But yet, that's the call. Yeah, to do it. Yeah. And we miss it every Advent. Yeah. We that's miss it, it every Advent. Yeah. You know, so, you know, we... It's we, a well-timed conversation, it turns out. I think so. Yeah. I think so. I mean, you know, that's that's why we need to have it. I mean, but I think it has to go to the public. I mean, and I think it has to go in a way in which it invokes that supernatural presence. I think that that's the only thing that's going to to be an answer to militarism and the growing militarism uh, in a, a growingly violent culture. Here's an amazing thing about the United States. Amazing thing about the United States. Just like 50 or 60 years ago, that discussion was going on, right? The whole, the, 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 the SNCC and, and Martin Luther King campaign, the nonviolence campaign, that discussion was happening in this country. The very discussion that you're saying you need to have was happening at, a, like, how many moments in history can you point to? Gandhi in India, Martin Luther King here, right? It's amazing. But it's going to happen again, Dave, before the end of the world. (laughs) Last words, Dave. Oh, this this has to continue. (laughs) The last words are an ellipses to be continued. (laughs) Absolutely. We're going to continue talking about how violence plays a part in building militarism and where it comes from and why do we need to shake it if we can supernaturally. And maybe the conversations that we're having over Emmanuel and Advent need to turn to, you know, a, a new humanity. Maybe we need to take a different look at how to deal with this particular seasons of giving. And it's not just about who Ho, ho, but it's about peace on earth. Until next time, Morning Black, building leaders in cultural knowledge. I'm your host, and we will continue this conversation until we come to a place where we can better understand how to be better encouragers of peace on earth and goodwill to all humanity. Until next time, Morning 